she also had a lot of trauma that she was never able to get help for because of some of the beliefs of the church. And so there were a lot of things that I still hold the church accountable for, which is why I like to do things like this. You know, Ronnie, mm-hmm. the, the reason that I want to speak about this now is because these are still practices. The reason I believe that some of the the way that people like Josh Duggar have turned out, for lack of a better word, is because we facilitated this mm. whole environment. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Shelley Snowpordia. She's the author of the Tracing Time Trilogy, a story which spans three generations of women who find their way in the world while seeking to save themselves and those they love. Her first children's book, The Hug Who Had No Arms, debuted on Amazon as a number one bestseller in several categories. Shelley is a cult survivor using her voice through the power of storytelling in order to promote change. A victim of childhood sexual abuse, she reached out to church leaders as a teenager only to be handled in a culture of shame and misogyny. Today, she advocates for survivors of spiritual, sexual, and institutional abuse with hashtag I got out and is writing a memoir about her experiences. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you so much for having me, Roni. Oh, thank you so much for being here. You know, I was talking with you a moment ago about the different stories I've covered on this podcast. And while I have uh, discussed with my guests coercive religions and cultic movements, those so far that I featured did not have an evangelical church slant or angle. And I think that it's really important to cover this because I've spent a little more time lately since my memoir came out studying cultic movements and listening to podcasts that interview people who have gotten out. And Mm -hmm. so I think that the evangelical movement is one that is maybe more mainstream in a way to Americans in terms of, you know, we've heard of it. We know that there's a voting population that Mm -hmm. politicians court, but I don't think people understand if you're not in it, what, what this means. So can you, let's, there's a lot to talk about, but just, just to begin with, what is an evangelical church? Well, I would say, start by saying that there's a broad spectrum as I'm sure is true with any given religion. And the evangelicals would simply adhere to the truth that they believe about the gospel, right? And That just means that they believe in the one true savior, Jesus Christ, which is, like you said, very mainstream and Mm -hmm. pretty innocuous, right? They're inviting people to be followers of Christ, as it were. But there are so many offshoots of that, that I guess a lot of the cultish behaviors kind of go under the radar Mm -hmm. in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. I always tell people that we were basically hiding in plain sight and... Mm -hmm. I only say that because we, some of us looked normal, right? I, mm. I think if you go into a coffee shop and, you know, you ask people if any of them are evangelical Christians, you'll find plenty, right? Because mm. mm-hmm. they just look like everyday people. Mm-hmm. But in our offshoot, uh, we are, 
we were called, or I guess all are still called, <laughs> the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement. And so they broke away from what's known as conventionally the Southern Baptist Movement mm -hmm. or Southern Baptist Convention. And this was long ago, probably in the 20s. There, there's a deeper history that I'm not completely familiar with. I have studied it some just for mm -hmm. my own work. You know, Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, all of these main leaders that people would know in the movement were also friends at the beginning with our who I consider to be the cult leader who mm -hmm. came out of it. Mm -hmm. And so the people that you would kind of be familiar with in our day and age, um, who are, again, they're kind of offshoots of an offshoot. So <laughs> <laughs> under the independent Baptist movement, there's also like another leader, Bill Gothard, and he mm. created IBLP. And that's the offshoot that like the Duggars who have the T. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. So they have the TLC show. Um, but again, all within the umbrella of these leaders of fundamental Baptist. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the main tenets? You know, I, as, as a lot of people listening know, I'm Jewish. I'm very culturally Jewish. I'm not a very um, devout person. I, I believe mm -hmm. in spirituality and I'm open and intuitive, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm probably a little... I'm a really loose religion type of person. So yeah. what what are some of the most important tenets? In the independent fundamental Baptist movement, they would still claim that they are basically mainstream evangelical, which is really how, you know, they kind of play off this normal vibe mm -hmm. <laughs> that they have going on. However, you would be able to pick us out of that coffee shop as the type that of believers we were, right? Mm. So uh, we had a specific dress code. Um, misogyny and the patriarchy were very, very prevalent and important. Um, the woman was under the man. So there's a, a little sketch that they would put of this umbrella of God's protection. And then the man was under that umbrella. And then the woman was under the man. And then the children were under, you know, the head of household, which again would be the man. Um, and then sometimes the church would go in there, it depended on kind of which church you went to. And so there was a lot of emphasis put on women's submission and uh, gender roles for, you know, children as well as husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of teachings like the curse of Cain being the fact that God cursed Cain with black skin. So a lot of racism. Mm. And I keep speaking in past tense because, <laughs> you know, I was like, this is what I was taught. And I and yeah, no yeah. longer believe, but this, they are currently practicing. Sure. Yeah. And, and in terms of questioning the church or questioning anything in the Bible, I mean, uh, what was, what would that be like? It depended on which household you were in. So mm. publicly, never. It was it was very common for us to be called out from the pulpit. Our leader had a habit of, you know, screaming and ranting and kicking down microphones and you'd watch them like tumble down this huge stage. So the setting that I grew up in was in what I call the headquarters. The movement has shifted and changed, obviously, like I grew up in the 70s and hmm. 80s. So in, in what part of the States, by the way, it was Right outside Chicago, Illinois. Mm. 
a little small city called Hammond, Indiana. And were your parents, did your parents, were they raised this way as well? Or did they find it? They, I would say yes and no. So my dad was introduced to the church as an eight-year-old. He and his father made a conversion statement the same evening. And they basically joined the church. And there was this bombastic preacher who came through and had a heavy influence on my parents' church. Well, Mm -hmm. my dad's church. Mm -hmm. And so in high school, my parents met. My mom was from, you know, what they would consider a broken home. Her parents were divorced. It wasn't extremely common back then for, you know, people to be divorced. And so she just found refuge in the church and in these programs that the church would have for young people. They fell in love. My dad asked her to come to his church and they were just more and more exposed, I guess, to this philosophy. And even when I was growing up, I watched things shift and change. The rules get stricter and stricter. And I'm sure if you've studied cult-like behavior, this is typical. It's like Steve Hassan says, right? The Nobody joins a cult. <laughs> right, exactly. And you, where were you in the birth order? And, and do you have siblings? I do, yes. So I am the second of four children. My older brother is just under a year and a half older than I am. And then my younger set of siblings are seven and a half and 10 years younger than I am. Was your mom, did she work or was she a stay-at-home mom? Well, at the beginning, she did work. But it was kind of discouraged after a while. Um, She had to work when my dad decided that he would move our little family up to headquarters and be trained in the seminary there. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where, from the time I was four to the time I was 10 and a half, we lived up near Chicago and were fully indoctrinated, as there's no other way I can say it. Every activity that we did had to either be approved by the church or was a church activity. There was really no life outside. You know, could you take me back a little bit to Mm -hmm. when you were growing up and you were young and you were being raised in this environment? I, you know, I'm wondering how much, if you can remember, of you was all on board, felt safe, uh, felt cozy, felt like this is where you belonged, and how much of you wondered or worried or second-guessed it? Well, the safety aspect is really interesting because everything was scary and that was normal because the devil was always out to get you. The scripture that they would use is that he is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I was also a very imaginative child. I was just kind of detached, I think. So when these stories started to become part of an everyday life for me, I tell my mom (laughs) now that they quickly turned me into a little liar because I knew that I could separate what I'd been told to what I felt to be true and fun in my pretend world. So just as an example, Mm -hmm. as you know, the rules changed all the time, we had a TV. And then we weren't allowed to have a TV. And Mm -hmm. 
I just loved like Donnie and Marie. That was yeah. my favorite. I think you and I are the same age. I, really I know. Do. Oh my gosh. When I was reading your memoir, I just felt such a connection because I totally related to all the references. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember the Donnie and Marie show. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, my mom said I just cried and cried every time that ending song would play because I knew it was over. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, and then we weren't allowed to watch it because it had secular music. And then suddenly we weren't allowed. Then I remember having conversations as children playing in this little complex where we all lived. You know, one of the kids like, we're not allowed to play that. We're not allowed to say that. And I'm just like, just pretend it's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and so that really became the pattern of my life. And I don't think that I realized that I was internalizing the fear and the guilt until much, much later. Right. And and what about your parents? I mean, were they your supporters? Were they your fans? Did they give you confidence or was your relationship with them fraught? I think that I had a mixture of both because Mm -hmm. they did encourage me to be creative. They always encouraged us to read. My dad was a great reader, an amazing writer, Mm. and he really loved the written word and made us fall fall in love with it. So we did go to the schools that Mm -hmm. the movement provided. So we were only educated in the system. But they used um, really antiquated materials because they believed that anything after the year like 1940 or something like that, that was published was questionable. Mm -hmm. And so we used all of these old McGuffey readers. I don't know if you're familiar with that. (laughs) No, but I mean, it's a great, it's, it sounds like something I should know. Well, it's like what they would use on the prairie. Oh, wow. And so there were words and I didn't know what they meant. And my dad just told me, like, look it up, go find the dictionary. That's interesting that they were, it sounds like your father was, am I, am I right in saying your father was really involved in the church? Yes, he was, for the youngest part of my childhood, he was actually being educated within their system. So he put us in the schools, but he also attended their college. And so it's, isn't it, it's kind of unique then that he would be open to allowing you to explore and to kind of possess different information. Yeah, I think that he had a different perspective. He was kind of the black sheep he would have Mm. called himself Mm -hmm. um, of the movement even many many years afterwards he became a pastor within their ranks and he always was kind of on the outskirts of what they would consider to be you know their premier people (laughs) Mm -hmm. and what about your mom was she was she all in absolutely so my Mm -hmm. mom was probably more rigid than my dad my dad, my mom had um, a much more difficult upbringing. Her parents were not only divorced, but her mom had different men in and out of her life. And mm-hmm. my mom had been abused by some of those men. Mm-hmm. And so finding a place where everything was kind of written out and rule directed became really, really, I guess, a safeguard for her in mm-hmm. a way. But she also had a lot of trauma that she was never able to get help for because of some of the beliefs of the church. And so there were a lot of things that I still hold 
the church accountable for, which is why I like to do things like this. You know, Ronnie, mm-hmm. the the reason that I want to speak about this now is because these are still practices. Mm-hmm. The reason I believe that some of the the way that people like Josh Duggar have turned out, for lack of a better word, is because we facilitated this mm. whole environment. I think it's time then we should probably dig in a little bit there. I don't think that everyone is familiar with his story. Yeah. And so when you say facilitated Josh Duggar, can you, you want to expand on that? Yes. So I only use him because there's a point of reference for some people, right? If you watch TLC or if you're familiar with the story of 19 Kids and Counting, you'll know that this large family who seems to be just a devout, believing family, which I believe in freedom of religion and freedom of thought. So that's not what I'm calling into question. However, I am saying that if we know that there are certain belief systems in place, like the man being under total control and not being questioned at all, the hypersexuality that is just imposed upon everyone, and by that I mean every little thing, like if your skirt is above your knee, is sexual. By, by talking about sex every moment <laughs> or implying the fact that a woman's body is dirty so it has to be covered at every moment a man is animalistic and cannot control his urges we have facilitated this way for men like Josh Duggar who is accused of some heinous crimes and pedophilia and child pornography and I don't know all of the details because mm. I'm I don't allow myself to go into the dirty details of things sometimes. I have to. Yeah, I understand that. Totally. I I have to keep with the headlines on some of that. It's very triggering for me. But there's no accountability because he's in a position. Is the idea that it's always the responsibility of a woman. If a man fails or if a man doesn't do what he needs to do godly like, then it's because of a woman's mistake. Yes, if it's involved in sexual behavior, absolutely. That is the message that we hear not only implicitly, but many times explicitly. And so I will say this in fairness. These are alleged crimes for which Josh Duggar will be tried. Mm-hmm. And and what about, you know, what did you see growing up and, and when did you first feel like you were responsible for a man's sexual urges or being able to deny them? Like, when did you first think of yourself as some, as a, as a being that could trigger that? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. When I was at my first teenage summer camp, there was a preacher again, you know, just the style of the IFB (laughs) screaming and yelling words like whore and seductress from the platform. And for the first time in my life, I realized that what had happened to me as a child, a boy who was also a member of the church or his family was and a member of the college, we were left in his care 
and my brother and I were both sexually molested. And so that I held that secret because, you know, for all of the reasons that victims will hold on Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. And again, one of the reasons I like to talk about this now is because still in most states, there is a statute of limitations on child sexual abuse. And the average age that somebody or the average time span that somebody will talk about a sexual assault is at minimum 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so anybody underneath the age of 18, it actually increases. So Mm -hmm. it just shows you that the statute of limitations is bunk, in my opinion. (laughs) Right, Um, right. It's actually, it kind of thwarts any... Well, it does. Period. Yeah. Yes. Do you did you and your brother talk about it, and did you talk about it with your parents, or did you hide it from them? Well, it was at that meeting or that sermon, whatever it was, that I finally realized that if what he was saying was true, he was actually lab- labeling a sex act, which the only exposure I had had to it was that exposure with my dirtiness, mm-hmm. you know, and so I was very affected by that sermon and I went to a camp counselor I confided in her and due to protocol because that is what you do within the movement she took me to my pastor and I had to relay the whole circumstance again to him and then when we arrived at home after this I don't know seven hour bus drive whatever it was Mm. both of my parents were at the church building to pick us up and I knew something was off, um, so I, we were all called into the pastor's office where he, again, had me relay the whole thing to my parents. I was very cognizant of the fact that this was a you know, 10, 12-year-old boy. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how old he was, but he could not have been older than 13. Mm-hmm. And you were how old? I was between four and five. Mm-hmm. And your brother was older, right? Yes. So he would have mm-hmm. been six, seven. Mm-hmm. I wasn't seeking for, you know, taking anybody down. My, my parents actually asked me, my mom specifically, because she had been through abuse, Yeah, asked, do you, do you want to press charges? Because at that time, I'm not even sure that the statute of limitations would have been expired. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it would not have been. And so I did have no desire at that time to you know, go after the guy. I just Mm -hmm. wanted help for me. And instead, throughout this process of events, I wasn't even able to own my story and tell it the way I wanted to. I had to follow protocol within this church system that basically just made me re-victimized in a way that would make me internalize this guilt even further. I was told things like, well, it's okay. You know, God can wash all of that away. You'll, you'll find a man someday mm. as if, you know, I was <laughs> the yeah, one. There's something was, wrong with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, with these ideologies, you make a four-year-old a sexual being because mm-hmm. you have made rules to where anything that she would show would be sexualized by a pervert. Well, that's true, but then mm-hmm. you it's it's almost as if this is at least how I see it and I'm no expert. But it is almost as if 
the perverts are being trained to conceptualize it that way. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and so that's why this is just rampant. I mean, I could tell you off the top of my head at least three or four names of men who have been imprisoned that I went to college with because I did end up going to the cult college after mm. a lot mm-hmm. of pressure and some traumatic events in, in our family life. But, um, and it, it's just pattern after pattern. And so, right. Yeah. So your, did your parents support you then? It sounds like the church went around it in the way they normally do, that they, they made you kind of the problem and they wanted to make you feel like you still had a chance at having a happy life, even though you were part of this dirty thing. And your parents, were they, they believed you and they were supportive of you? They did believe me immediately. And for that, I'm really grateful. Um, my brother, however, requested that I keep his secret. And so that was difficult. But again, they were also kind of captive within the system that if I was still having a problem, then I just needed to be prayed over. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was always like, oh, well, you can't handle the word rape when someone says it. You begin to shake. So Mm -hmm. let's just have a prayer session. Mm -hmm. Did your brother and you ever talk about it again? Absolutely he was out of college already. He is a working actor, so he lives in Hollywood, and he had an <laughs> opportunity to speak to a group of people about his experience. And I believe that might have been the first time that mm-hmm. he had spoken publicly about it. But he did contact me, and we had long conversations about it, especially before he wrote his one-man show. So he did a tour um, with raising awareness for mm-hmm. men of sexual abuse, which again, I mean, that just has a whole different stigma mm-hmm. in society, not just within a culture or a cult, right? Right. Yeah. Did Did he leave the church as well? Yes. So I mentioned that um, after some traumatic events in our family, um, are you are you able to talk about those a little yes, bit? Yes. Yes, I am. Thank you for asking. Um, my, my brother is very public about his experience as well, but he um, ran away. He ended up running away uh, when he was 17, I believe. So I would have been, I think it was just when I was turning 16, he mm-hmm. had run away. And um, it really changed everything for me. I didn't have a comrade. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my younger siblings were quite young. Really, I lost my best friend, and I didn't have the strength, really, to argue. The reason he left, I guess I should go into that a little bit, is he was nominated as homecoming king and Mm -hmm. was unable to attend. So my dad, through the course of the years, it was, you know, in the 80s, and so there were recessions and things, and they had, he had lost his job. And we were no longer able to go to the private school. Mm-hmm. And my brother and I went to the public school. Well, at the public school, I just, I hated it because I still had to dress like with all the rules. Mm-hmm. And it was embarrassing and I just didn't fit in. And so when my dad offered to send us back to the private school, I was so excited. And my brother just put his foot down and said, no. I want to play basketball. I want to do theater. I 
them begging you to stay at the public school. And, you know, being fiscally minded a little, (laughs) they said, okay, that's fine. You can go for your last two years of high school. And so just the normal events of high school. I mean, can you imagine now I I say it and it's just like, oh my word, he just wanted to go to homecoming. Mm -hmm. And they put their foot down and said no. And so he left in the middle of the night one night. My dad just came into my bedroom weeping and weeping and saying things like, just tell me where my firstborn is. Please tell me. And it it broke something inside me. And Mm. So I just decided from that night on, like, okay, I'm going to be the good girl. I'm going to stop, like, doing all these other things on the side because, admittedly, I would sneak out and wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> I went and saw New Kids on the Block concerts. That I got <laughs> um, you know, I was still living that double life. Like, I had so much experience with it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my brother, I, I always told him that his downfall was that he always got caught. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, I kind of committed that night or the next day, whenever it was, that, you know, I was going to give this thing a real try. Um, and so I did. And our relationship changed. My brother and I drifted apart for a few years, especially when I went back to the college and studied there and graduated and did he did he stay missing or did he come back no he never came back but I I say never came back he never came back to live with the parents they were able to repair the relationship enough to where he would come home for Christmas Um, I married my husband and moved overseas and anytime I was back in the states he would go to my parents and we would visit You know, he would touch base and like just have a little vacation with us wherever we were in the country. And so he was able, like I said, to mend that relationship enough. And actually, a couple years, maybe three or four years before my dad's death, um, he was able to really strengthen and solidify a good relationship with my dad with the mutual understanding that they would never agree on certain issues Mm -hmm. so of your siblings um how many of you left that church all Mm -hmm. is your mom still in it she is she is Mm -hmm. so do you have a relationship with her yes yes we all do and I think that's something that's unique about my mom um she is at least willing to overlook some things that Many others would tell her that she shouldn't or, you know, maybe maybe some of the teachings for most of the churches within IFB. I mean, you can imagine, right, you being Jewish, you said you're culturally Mm -hmm. Jewish, but Mm -hmm. you're familiar enough with synagogues to where one Mm -hmm. rabbi will say this and another rabbi will say that. It's it's very similar in like, you know, one pastor will tell you that you need to give your kids space and the other one's going to tell you that no 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 it's your responsibility to like be you know protest the you know holiday because they're going to have wine or you know whatever Mm -hmm, it might be mm -hmm. so I'm not really sure where all that is with my mom but she has been able to kind of put the differences aside and um, understand like I've had open conversations with her about the fact that you know my brother and I 
have, you know, some publicity and Mm -hmm. we speak publicly about these things and it's really not about her. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. It's a separate. It's a separate thing. There, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to necessarily implicate her or judge her. Yeah, yeah. Do Do you? When do you remember thinking? Oh, I just, I just got out of a cult. Or when did you make the connection? What was the order of events for you? Oh wow! I think that it was gradual. As I said, um, I did meet my husband at the cult college. He was not raised in it. He was raised overseas, actually under communism in the country of Romania. And he was exposed to some people who were evangelizing and came through the country once its dictator was shot and, Mm. you know, the borders were open. And he already knew English. We ended up getting married right before my senior year of college and moving back to Romania and oh wow yeah in 1999 and so we just you know lived our life over there for a while and without exposure to this circle I'm sure there are a smattering of IFB people across Europe but you know your everyday life you live and you see a culture and a way of life that is so far removed from anything you've ever seen or believed that it it causes you to question. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so it it was little by little, question after question, and eventually it was devastating. I thought nothing was true. Mm -hmm. And I told him, you know, I don't know what I believe, and this kind of sucks for you because you pastor an evangelical church and this is like too much for me to handle and you know he said hey you know god is big enough to handle questions so you you do what you have to do and he was very supportive in my entire journey and then um i guess the biggest blow was when our leader had passed away um the guy i grew up with jack hiles And Mm -hmm. his son-in-law had taken his place. And his son-in-law was actually very influential in my life as a teenager and as a college student. He ended up going to prison for taking a minor across state lines for sex. Mm -hmm. And that shattered something in me where all of my questions, it's almost as if they had proof. Mm -hmm. and I just I knew at that point like this was what we were groomed for this is why this hadn't made sense to me for a long time this is why I've tortured myself with some of these beliefs like we used to have split chapel sessions is what they would call them and the guys would be separated from the girls and they would just teach us horrific things about being a woman (laughs) like what like you are responsible fully right if your husband has a wandering eye Mm -hmm. and so they would teach us ways to keep his attention like rising you know 20 minutes before his alarm so that you can be up and ready and in a full face of makeup and you know dressed properly so that when he sees you first thing he is reminded of what he has at home because by the time he comes back he has already seen you know all these sensual 
lust-filled women who want to steal him from you. So <laughs> you, you know, these are the ways to keep him. And, um, you know, just about bodies and dangerous, how dangerous we are as women. And, um, you know, there's this like four finger rule that you have to put your thumb in the little like dip in your neck, your trachea, mm -hmm. you know, and then like your four fingers beneath that, nothing can be lower than that. Like everything has to be covered from mm -hmm. there and below because, you know, your breasts are so dangerous to a man and you internalize these ideologies as you are a problem, like your existence and just walking around with those kinds of beliefs and not being able to share them for so long. Well, I say not being able to, but feeling as if, you know, the guys know that they're teaching us this, which, you know, mm -hmm. by the time I shared them with my husband, we had probably been married for 10 years. And I'm struggling so much with my own self-confidence and, you know, living in a foreign country, learning a second language, raising my kids over there, which I'm also I'm so, so grateful for without that experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I would not have been where I am. But, you know, you compound all of these ideas with the juxtaposition of what you see and are experiencing to be true and they don't match <laughs> right and he, do you do you have friends or do, do you know of people who are still in the church or or when you were in the church and you were a teenager do you have a sense of some of the young women there really believing this or still maybe being trapped in that kind of thought pattern that never got away from it yeah yeah um yeah, I have yeah. Uh, plenty of people that I went to school with or grew up with who, you know, would say that, you know, they're they're right. Why wouldn't I still believe this? And mm -hmm. um, that's that's why I find it so harmful, especially since I was given these messages at such a young age and seeing how far it took me and the damage mentally, physically and spiritually. I didn't even go into my physical journey but I had physical reactions to all of this that manifested in when I was in college I had what we would call today as anxiety or panic attacks mm -hmm. and that manifested in a partial paralysis and oh. I didn't understand what was happening until I finally realized hey I'm back in that spot where mm -hmm. these things happen to me, maybe I need mm -hmm. to tell someone. And again, I was sent to, ironically, the guy who sits in prison, mm -hmm. um, to go through exercises like him telling me, oh, you just don't trust men. You have to know good men. You have to respond well to men. So I'm going to sit here and say, Shelly, you're beautiful because you are a beautiful girl. And that's why this happened to you. So if you can receive that from a good man, then it will cure you of what is happening. So you respond with thank you when I say you're beautiful. Hmm. And these were the tactics that were used on my psyche to just kind of push me into submission because that mm -hmm. was always the plan. Right. And, and you are, everyone is going to react differently to all this. And you had this set of circumstances and this background and these parents that maybe all went together to help you find a way out of it. But I think also, and some of that is just chance, you know, I think nature, nurture, yeah. chance. But I think of all the people who aren't ever going to find 
a way out or who may not realize that they're not to blame for what's happened to them. Yes, especially when you're conditioned to silence your inner voice. And I really am grateful that I had that just fantasy life of my own where Mm. I was able to tap into that intuition and that knowing that served me very well later on. Yeah. So Shelly, what do you think are commonalities between, I mean, you're very active in the I Got Out movement, and I guess we should, you know, we're going to wind down soon, and I, I want to... Can you talk a little bit about the I Got Out movement and how how you what you're doing with it and what commonalities there might be for MLMs, evangelical churches, traditional quote cults? What what do you think are some really big warning signs? Well, I would start out by saying pointing people to the bite model that Steve Hassan has that is behavior, information, thought, and emotional control. Um, And if these are the things that are happening within whatever system or relationship that you find yourself, then understand that these are cult tactics. You know, I started calling the church that I came from a cult long before even my husband did (laughs) because he was only exposed to it for the couple of years that I dragged him back. (laughs) (laughs) But he really realized that this is... That's the common thread when we were watching Leah Remini's special, Mm -hmm. The Aftermath. And if you can watch a Scientology thing and say, oh, we were in a cult, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you you know that it's got to be bad, right? Because everybody's like, oh, Scientology, they're so crazy, you know, because Mm -hmm. they believe. It's so outlandish, right? It's so outlandish. Like they believe in Xenu. Who's, you know, who does that? And you're like, no, no, no. You don't understand. (laughs) Like you can use these tactics to get people to believe or do just about anything because of the years and years of coercive control. Mm -hmm. And that really is the common thread. And, And that's why I think it's important, the work that you're doing, that we bring that to the forefront. Like we're, I'm not telling you what to believe. Like I'm not telling you that you shouldn't wear long skirts or cover up your chest. That's fine. That's a choice that you can make. What I am saying is that you have an inner knowing that is good for you and your Mm -hmm. soul. And if anyone is coming to you saying, you don't know what's good for you, then put it within the light of this framework. Mm -hmm. Are they controlling your behavior? your information, your thoughts, and your emotions. That's that's where I would begin. So these days, what are you working on? What's your next project? Yes, thank you for asking. So I am kind of between things. I'm, I'm in this strange transition of my career where I have these published works that I still want to promote and grow an audience for. I am currently... Um, with a management company who's trying to sell the rights to my movies for the books, you know, to be turned Mm -hmm. into movies, which is super exciting. But the real work that I love to spend time on is raising awareness um, about coercive control and cult-like tactics. And so I am working on a memoir. I'm seeking publication for that. I've 
finished my book proposal. So hopefully. Mm, congratulations. Yeah, thank That's you. Very, very demanding to do that. Oh, my goodness. I think it took I'm me a year. I'm in the process year. now. And my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, you know, I'll have a podcast. My brother and I are working on um, some projects together. So we wrote a screen. <gasps> yeah, we wrote a screenplay, um, fictional screenplay, uh, but based on you know, our experience and some of the experiences of others within our movement to hopefully shed some light. And so we're trying to sell that. But I think it's amazing that you and your brother are so creative. I have to ask, are are your other two siblings creative this way? Yes, we all are musical, but my, Mm. my younger brother is just an incredible musician. And my sister is one of the wittiest persons you will ever meet in your life. She is the best at one-liners and marketing. So, my goodness. Well, so where do you think you – was this from mom and dad, mom or dad? Or do you have a sense of where you all got these this creative light from? Yeah. So my dad, I mentioned before that he was an amazing writer when the internet was a new thing and chat rooms were portrayed on TV as those things that, you know, like perpetrators lingered on. (laughs) Um, My dad was actually a poet and he would be in all these forums for poetry and he won poet of the year a couple years in a row. Yeah. In like the early 2000s. And so he got a book deal from that. And then my mom was a singer so yeah yeah wow so do you do you feel that you and your siblings you know on the scale of being free or burdened still by your upbringing and all these church constructs and stuff like that do you where are you do you think you and your siblings in terms of being your authentic selves and being worried still by you know what you grew up with how free are you wow thank you for asking I think that is so interesting because I'm, I would say for myself that I'm still closest to having broken free. So I was in it. I went to the college. I, you know, lived overseas for years before really questioning everything. Um, my siblings were out before they hit high school, mm. uh, mentally, obviously not physically. Mm-hmm. And so I I think that they all live their lives very, very free. And, mm. you know, we probably have a lot to attribute to my older brother for that. He found his place in writing and producing and things like that. But finally, he was in his 40s before he was like, I'm an actor and I'm gonna, <laughs> and I'm going to act like one. And it was then, you know, that he started booking mainstream shows like, hmm. you know, Good Girls, 911. He was on The Rookie a few times, you know, so like all of these shows that he dreamt that he could be on or things that he, I guess, dreamt that he would do didn't come to fruition because of some of the lack of freedom he felt in his own life. And I don't know that it necessarily had everything to do with the cult, but it it does taint your mindset for for a very long time. I I feel happy that you and your siblings have found a way to embrace who you really are, and that you know I feel so sorry for what your brother went through and what you went through, and and it's so hard. I mean, it sounds like your parents. It sounds like he had a really hard time with your mom, and I just it it kind of comes back to my area of interest, mm. which is how much parents 
control and shape their children's lives and then how how much work children have to do as we grow up to get to be free of that or to find ourselves again and and find out who we really are without all those messages and the treatment we received it's just it's an ongoing struggle right Uh, and anyone who makes it out is just it's amazing yes and I find that so fascinating about your story and how connected I felt to it with you being the affected one not necessarily Mm. the indoctrinated one and I have often thought as a mother of the choices I made for my children that they had no control over Mm. and they had to live with that and you know formulate this personality and these ideologies because of how I shaped them right Mm -hmm. and so that is just so fascinating to me and the perspective that you bring to that is really interesting especially in this world of you know cult dynamics that we talk about the fact that you know your decisions no matter who you are really but our decisions affect so many people oh yes 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 and I I just love meeting I love talking with you and and meeting other people like you who are are searching and thinking about it because I think that that openness and curiosity is one of the first steps in getting better Hmm. where can people find you and in your work or how can they connect with you Shelly yes you can find me at ShellySnowPortia.com so just my name.com that's where I have my information, my books. My books are really anywhere books are sold. And you'll probably see me most on Instagram. And again, Mm -hmm. it's just my name, Shelly Snow Portia. Great. Thank you so much for being with me and sharing your story. And I'm so looking forward to your memoir when that's ready. Thank you so much. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.